0: This is Delegate Brian Crosby from St. Mary's County, the mother county, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of information on what's happening in Annapolis. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here remotely with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today?
1: I'm doing okay, Kevin. Good to be with you under unusual circumstances.
0: Right. We are practicing social distancing. Obviously, (laughs) with COVID-19, the coronavirus, things are a little bit different, but we know there's a lot of news that we want to bring to our listeners. So, Michael, I think today we'll do a quick recap of an abridged legislative session And we'll do much more in the weeks ahead with some of the policy staff, our colleagues. And then on the back half, we'll talk about some coronavirus-related issues. Does that sound good to you?
1: Yeah, I think think that's good. So let's just do a quick run-through of things through the last days of this session that got tied up earlier this week. And then over the next few weeks, there's a few things here that are worth unpacking and worth
0: their own segments. But for right now, we'll just sort of, you know, skip through them all. Okay. So obviously, Michael, as we mentioned, this was an abridged legislative session because of the coronavirus outbreak. I mean, we had the House and Senate buildings were on lockdown. Staffers were sent home. It was really a weird way to end the session. I mean, have you ever seen Anything no. like this in terms of a way that, I mean, they haven't ended a session early since the Civil War, right? Since the
1: Civil War, right? So 1861 was the last time anything structurally like this happened. And and this year was even weirder just because of you know, the buildings being cleared out. Uh, for for people who are staff and assistants to members of the legislature, if they were 60 years or older, they were told work remotely, don't come in for these last several days. We went through about a week or so of real time, not knowing when the process was going to really wind down. Right. You know, the word, you know, word came out on Friday that the legislature was clearly going to do something less than three more weeks Mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't know what that was going to look like it was a long weekend you know two long days on saturday and sunday which itself is pretty unusual right but but it was peculiar you know public hearings with no public (laughs) sponsors being the only one there to talk about their bills it's some issues, I think, ended up suffering for the lack of participant attention and participation. It's just yeah, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. when they're they're trying to be safe and and respectful for the members and for the public, that's obviously the right thing to do. Right. but you end up losing something in in compressing the process that way,
0: absolutely. And I mean, they were obviously trying to get some significant pieces of legislation passed they did get some other bills passed i think just as a process of waiting for the budget obviously which was the big piece that they had to pass and i think with the skeleton staff there was literally it was hard for them to get everything ready to go and printed and and so in the meantime they were able to get some other things done as well but in terms of the budget michael uh, most of what we were concerned with was in the BRFA, right the budget reconciliation financing act right. there were a few things there that we raised concerns with and the takeaway is everything turned out very well for us in the Burfa.
1: I think generally the, the legislature was responsive to things they heard from local governments. And, you know, we didn't have a really long list of grievances this year. There are times when we come to the budget table with you know, three-page list of items. And you know, I've, I've been at the table during conference committee when the House and Senate are working out their details. And the counties have had this big sheet of paper that says, you know, on item number two, we like the Senate position. On items four, five, and eight, we like the House position. Number 10, please do neither. Blah, 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 you know, right. Like these big convoluted lists. And here we had a short list of things, a uh, you you testified at the at the Senate budget reconciliation bill hearing and kind of walked through your issues. I did the same thing in the House and I felt like we had the luxury of being pretty clear this year, mm-hmm. a short list. And we weren't asking to really tip over the apple cart. Right? We, we weren't asking for a one hundred million dollar change in the bottom line. That's always nice to not have to mess up the whole budget if they if you get what you want.
0: Right. So we can talk a little bit more about that in the weeks ahead. But the overall takeaway for me, for counties, the House and the Senate really looked out for counties in the budget and in the, the, the Budget Reconciliation Financing Act, the BRFA. So good news there. Michael, obviously, we have talked a lot about Kerwin, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. That bill did pass. This was one of the priority bills, I think, that they really wanted to get done before they adjourned early. The bill passed late Tuesday night. They adjourned on Wednesday. So we expected the bill to pass, but there is something new here, Michael. There's a trigger mechanism, and that was added by a late amendment. And for you, first of all, explain how that works, and do you think that was done maybe to add some comfort for maybe some of the skeptics? I, I think so.
1: And uh, we we did an item on the Conduit Street blog that sort of takes that piece of the bill and gives it a little bit of a magnifying glass. I mean, that's sort of our brand to get in the weeds, right? So I, I, I right. don't want to do a 15-minute conversation here about that. Maybe we do that in the weeks ahead. Mm-hmm. We probably have a little time before the governor decides what he wants to do with this bill. Um, but I think this provision pretty clearly was directed at legislators who were a little concerned that the bill was aggressive on spending no matter what. So if you put something in the bill that says in a given year, if the economic circumstance looks really dire, then the bill should automatically
0: adjust to that. Right. And and as we're here on Thursday, March 19th, things are looking dire, right? With the coronavirus, we have Restaurants and bars are closed down. Entertainment venues are closed down. You can't go into the airport unless you're a passenger as of today. Obviously, businesses are hurting. And when that happens, you'll see an impact at the state and the local level, right?
1: You would think so. For for the state budget, the two biggest moving forces that that sort of guide state revenues are the state's income tax and sales tax and both of those are really a function of the immediate economy right. so you know income tax is a, is mostly a function of people working and Incidentally, it's a function of people getting income through having business activities or making money in the stock market or on investments and so forth. But all of those things are a function of stuff you're basically doing now. Mm -hmm. So as a practical matter, um, you know, if, if we see... A coronavirus-driven recession, which right now has almost become baked into what everybody thinks is happening in the American economy. Maybe we'll see that in state revenues right away. Same thing for sales tax. I mean, who, who right now is going out and buying a refrigerator, right?
0: Nobody. In in addition
1: to not being able to go to bars and restaurants, and we're seeing shopping malls today being shut down, you know, indoor malls and other things like that. So there's going to be a really big dent in both sales and income taxes from the government's point of view. Mm -hmm. So we're in that setting right now for sure.
0: Right. So this trigger is designed to sort of protect the state and the counties. From you know being forced to spend a lot of money that they don't have, right? And hopefully, yeah. obviously, we saw Michael. A lot of Republicans, at least in the Senate, voted for this bill. And you mentioned the governor earlier. Do you think that affects the governor's decision here? Does the governor veto this bill, even though it looks like at least the way they voted when it came to the bill that the General Assembly would easily be able to override that veto? I I, I don't know.
1: It's now I, I think I think that actually. The last thing you said has some impact on the first thing you said, mm-hmm. that the, the the fact that there are enough votes in the Senate and the House to override a governor's veto if he wanted to probably makes it less consequential, right? I mean, it's right. not like the governor could veto the bill and then the legislature wouldn't have any 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 way to respond to that and the bill would just die. So I don't think we're talking about whether the bill dies. We're probably talking about whether the bill takes effect on its ordinary schedule, if it's just signed into law or becomes law this spring. Right. Or. If the governor were to decide to veto the bill, the legislature could come back for a special session, or they could wait until January. Mm -hmm. Really, the funding is for future years, anyhow. So either of those cases seems practically the same. Um, Out of fifteen Republican senators, six of them ended up voting for the bill in the end. Several of them got amendments on the bill, and they raised a concern and got a change here or change there. Uh, That that's. Connected to the fact that that several voted for it, but uh, right. I don't know that that makes the debate a little more complicated than it seemed back in you know September October when the governor was full of, I don't know criticism for the process and for the cost and you know, sort of the price tag of this big ambitious proposal. So I think it's an unknown what the governor will do. But it's an all but certain outcome that this bill is going to become law and including this trigger mechanism, which I think we can we can lay out in more detail, maybe at a, at a future episode. Right. Um, it's got some new wrinkles in it. But basically, it's the big, ambitious school spending and accountability and expectations plan that everybody's been working on for three years plus.
0: Right. And the other big education related issue, obviously, was school construction. We've talked a lot about this, too. That bill did pass as well, the Built to Learn Act. Any right. big surprises there, Michael?
1: Um, not really big surprises. I, I would say, as an aside, I mean, Mako supported the bill. We had some things we thought that the bill could have been could have been written a little more tightly, and it could have been improved with some changes. I I think the bill probably would have gotten a closer look had it not been for the legislature moving into sort of warp drive for these last few days if they had had three days to sort out what to do with this bill i think there would have been more technical and mechanical issues that counties would have welcomed i think school boards and superintendents would have welcomed as well Um, as it turns out bill's going to pass the i mean the centerpiece idea of let's take some casino money leverage it for a number of years and do a new layer of spending right right now while interest rates are low that concept is going to happen right um it's going to clear the deck of an awful lot of projects that we've been waiting years to get approved which a lot of counties are going to welcome Mm -hmm. and it should it should free up demand for the for the vanilla school construction program because this supercharged stuff is happening is going to benefit a lot of places so i mean that that's a good thing for kids who are in crowded schools or who are in need of a new wing or a new system or whatever so
0: yeah, and you know, I should mention too the the whole discussion about vetoes. It's it's everything is overshadowed by COVID-19 right now. I mean, the governor doesn't seem to be thinking about what he's going to do with any piece of legislation no, at this point. No, he's focused on the coronavirus COVID-19. So it's really hard, I think, to get a read and and really to focus on anything else except what's going on across the world right now. It's it's really overwhelming.
1: That's that's very well put. So uh, that's it's been the nature of that issue and. I don't think anybody feels put off that mm-hmm. their issue is kind of taking a backseat to the crisis of the moment. And I also feel like everybody of every political persuasion has pulled behind the governor and their local leaders and public health leaders in what's Maryland's plan going to be? Okay, what do we need to do? What things need to shut down? How do we how do we try and best accommodate them? You know, some some quick legislation went through to make sure. We have flexibility with unemployment benefits and some other things like that, because we know that's going to be a component of this. So I don't know. You know, Marilyn's pulling together on the big issue of the day. You and I kind of have the unfortunate duty of doing some mop up on stuff that's
0: important, but not the issue today. Right. And on that, too, I mean, I think. I know that the governor and his team has been in contact with local leaders and that's always good to see as well. So oh,
1: yeah, every every day. Yeah, that's, yes. That's really where we are is this is this is a day by day conversation with with leaders at the state and, and, and local level. And that's that's been very, very welcome.
0: OK, so a few more things here. Pimlico, obviously, this was a big issue coming into session. It was a big issue last year. They couldn't quite get it done. They did get that wrapped up. There's a new deal in place. This one did go to conference committee, even with the tight time frame. Yeah, that seemed
1: that seemed like a dicey proposition. That House and Senate disagree on what to do, and send it to a group to sort out their differences, which felt like a bit of a high wire act. But that that didn't happen until there had been a plan that the legislature was going to meet through Wednesday. So that, that sort of told the world, OK, we've got three days to work out something. So if you need three days, take three
0: days. And obviously, we've heard now that the Preakness, which is obviously run at Pimlico, uh, is delayed or or is most likely to be delayed. So again, right. coronavirus, I mean, every every issue that you could talk about, it, there's a component there. But that did get done. I know it was a big win for Baltimore City and some of the folks who really wanted to see that get done. I think the Jockey Club is happy as well. So that was something that they really wanted to do, and they did finish up.
1: And and similarly, um, you know, legislation to do uh, to do sports wagering, mm-hmm. uh, another piece that was a priority to get done this year. And there were different theories about how to execute that and how to implement it. Uh, another piece that got through in the last these last few days. So no surprise that that worked itself out. But it was it was a matter of okay, instead of three weeks, we have three days. OK, we'll, we'll pull together and get it done in three days.
0: And the sports wagering one was interesting because they basically stripped the bill down to a study. And then also, you know, we're going to put this on the ballot. But originally, there was an implementation piece as well who would be able to get these licenses. And so there was a lot of uh, flurry at the end of session of how they were going to move this bill forward. But we do know that there will be a question on the ballot. It's a constitutional amendment and voters will be able to decide on the 2020 ballot, whether or not to approve sports wagering in Maryland. Right. And then, of course, we know HBCUs, Michael, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. There has been a lawsuit in the works, and this is another huge priority. They did pass a bill that would require the state to spend $580 million to settle a long-running suit. For these historically black colleges and universities, so I know that was a high profile issue that they really wanted to to finish up, and they were able to do that as well. That's
1: a really big lingering issue to get put to bed in a in a compromised fashion that has an awful lot of stakeholders feeling like they got to a reasonable place. And you know, this is a topic that we could also dedicate twenty minutes to all the mm-hmm. mechanics that how we got here and so forth. But um, it took an awful lot of bend. To get to yes on this, so you know, hats off. A awful lot got done in these last several days of an abbreviated session. Uh, oddly enough, uh, they were some of the most productive days. I don't, you know, I don't want to draw any dramatic inferences from that, but it's 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 actually uh, uh, amazing. So this list of things that happened in the last four or five days of this session.
0: Yeah, and one really interesting issue that, I, that we'll definitely get into this one more on another episode. But there is a bill, and it's called Balancing the State Budget. And we know that Maryland, the executive in Maryland, is considered the most powerful in the country because yeah. of the way that we formulate our budget, right? In most states, the, the legislature is able to add or move money around in the budget that is submitted by the executive. But in Maryland, the General Assembly is not able to add. They can only subtract. They can fence stuff off. Right. But it literally on the last day, a bill popped out of the Senate through the house. And it made it through, this is a constitutional amendment question about whether or not to give the general assembly, the ability to move funding around in the budget, which would obviously be a huge shift of power, but there was an amendment added to allow the governor to line item veto the operating budget. And that, you know, so I think that was a, that was added for balance, but man, that was a controversial issue on the last day.
1: So it was there were definitely some like like tempers running high on the last day of the session as this was moving through. And that that's its own story. So I I think your summary is good. Uh, Let's I mean let's put a pin in both those issues. I think I think I think the sports wagering and how the details aren't necessarily there, but it's still going to be on the ballot. And then this is a constitutional amendment, which has to be on the ballot as well. Um, We're kind of into this structure of government thing. So, you know, sometime a few weeks from now, we can sit down and spend some time breaking out each of these two issues, both of them, I think, are worth a little bit of time, and you know, for for the kind of people who listen to the Conduit Street podcast, okay, you know who you are, right? All right, so circle that date on your calendar. We're going to break down the two budget, the two, the two uh, constitutional questions that we'll see on the ballot this November, and uh, I think I think both of them are interesting, worth us more than a sentence or two.
0: Yeah, I think fascinating for sure. And of course, Michael, one more digital downloads. They did approve a bill that would extend the state's 6% sales tax to digital downloads of products like ebooks, songs, movies, streaming, TV services. We've talked about that also a lot on this podcast and how new technology uh, yeah. influences policy and how policy struggles to catch up. This is definitely. A big, big win for folks who think that there was an inequity there in terms of digital content.
1: So a a combination of that, the, the download of digital content being sort of the same thing as buying the piece of paper, and then also this idea of of considering the gross receipts of companies that do advertising in your jurisdiction, all that all that stuff was a really interesting policy debate in Maryland.
0: It's
1: not happening exclusively here. So I feel like that's another topic that's worth like mentioning in passing right now, but we sit down and maybe, you know, maybe we bring one of our counterparts from NACO or from another state to, you know, on, onto the pod to talk through some of the stuff in more detail down the road. I think, I think there's an interesting policy debate happening there too. And we only got a taste of it, right? At, at various times For during sure. the session, it looked like there might be a big sales tax revenue issue. That didn't really happen in a large, large way. But a few pieces did. We think telecommunications is ripe. Um, it seems mm-hmm. like this is the modernize your tax code concept being tested. So all that stuff is interesting and worth you know expanding on. Once we work out this technology and and you know work out our timing for how and how and when to do our pods.
0: Right. So more to come there. We'll bring in the policy team. Obviously, we'd like to dive into some more of these issues and we'll figure out how to do this remotely. Hopefully, Michael, this doesn't sound awful. We're going to do our best again. But (laughs) why don't why don't we leave it there for now? We'll go ahead and take a break. When we'll come back, we're going to talk about another issue that has been heavily influenced with the outbreak of the coronavirus, COVID-19. And that is the upcoming primary election. Michael, how about we get into all that after the break? I like it. All right, all that and more after the break. This is John Fernay with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Eye on Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canali back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we, on the first half here, we talked a lot about COVID-19, some of the extraordinary measures here in Maryland and across the country. One of the biggest issues facing states was and is the looming primary election, which for Maryland was scheduled for April 28th. And there is a twist here that we also have a special election to fill the late Elijah Cummings's seat in the 7th District. That's gonna take place on the same day as the primary, and we have seen states across the country grappling with this issue about what to do amid the coronavirus outbreak, Michael. But in particular, I know you're interested in your home state, Ohio, and what played out over the past week there. So I kind of want to get into what the governor did here in Maryland, and then let's talk about what happened in Ohio and why it would be best for Maryland to avoid that scenario.
1: I, I think I think that's a it's a good setup and to me this is just this is part of the non-obvious things that are part of public service that don't strike you right away as you think about what we're going through okay so there's 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 a health crisis afoot um, it's a worldwide pandemic and we've got all these various guidance and, and new rules coming from the government saying, you know, don't do these things. We're going to close these kinds of businesses. Don't have these kinds of of gatherings. And, you know, the, the, the whole social distancing mantra, you know, we're doing our best to re- record remotely and we're doing our part, that sort of thing. But then you think about, Running an election is a Mm -hmm. fundamental part of running the government. It's a function of county governments. And we're scheduled to have an event in late April of this year, just a few weeks away, which would which would have thousands and thousands of people coming into public places. A lot of those are in school buildings, by the way. Right. And. You know, working with volunteer election judges, uh, the sizable share of whom are senior citizens and demographically are some of the most vulnerable people in this crisis. I mean, the confluence of our worry about public health and our need to conduct a public election, the overlap of those two is just full of conflict.
0: Right. And we, you know, today the governor announced he doesn't want to see any gatherings of 10 Or more people. So, obviously, if you're operating an election, you have multiple polling sites, all of which will have more than 10 people. And as our local election directors are looking at this issue, right now they are training election workers, right? And most counties, I think all of them now, have obviously canceled the training for election judges because, of course, the coronavirus outbreak. And so they were very, very concerned about. What was going to happen again scheduled on April 28th? I think the you know, the general consensus is that we're going to be dealing with this issue for a while. And even if we were able to do it on the 28th, they felt like they were very much behind in terms of training, in terms of making sure that they had enough people at the polls, etc., and so, yeah, you're right. This is a tough issue when it comes to public health and obviously conducting an election. Right. It's a it's really hard to sort of split the two there and make sure that you can do both effectively okay. and safely.
1: It's a, it's a different gear. We're, we're used to having our election directors raise these kind of nuts and bolts issues in Annapolis on policy changes. So you know when when the state says we want to go to same day registration we want to have 8 days of early voting we would say well you know we need to we're worried about the security of the ballots or we're worried about getting our staff trained on time or we're worried about being able to turn over things by the timetable you're telling us or right. we don't have enough money or staff to do x y and z i mean that's sort of we're we're concerned that we won't be able to live up to your expectations of running a good, crisp election. Mm-hmm. But now, this is a totally different dimension. It's like, we're afraid none of our staff can show up. We're afraid we're jeopardizing people's health and security. Well, that's like that's a totally different uh, policy discussion. And mm-hmm. it's still about uh, the conduct of elections, but in this setting, it's a really different conversation.
0: And it's overwhelming. I mean, I'll sure. say you know, the the past week back and forth with all of our, our local election folks who are fantastic and they're super talented and smart. And I was sort of acting as the conduit And just trying to process all this information with everything else going on back and forth with the governor's office. They're trying to do the right thing. I mean, again, this is it. it, That's that issue is not just in a vacuum. There's so much else going on. And it's really amazing to see everybody sort of reacting on the fly to all these separate issues that need to be dealt with. And I, I guess we can talk about sort of what happened in Ohio, Michael. Or do you want to get into what Governor Hogan decided in terms of what Maryland's going to do first?
1: Well, I guess like maybe let's let's talk about where we are right now in okay. Maryland, because we have we have sort of a split decision on what to do in Maryland. And then if we look at what just shook out in Ohio and a couple of the other states, I feel like that's informative for the back half of what Maryland's going to do.
0: I agree. I agree. So in Maryland, the governor announced two things. As you said, there's there's two decisions here. Number one for the special election to fill the district 7 congressional seat the governor has directed the state board of elections to conduct that election by mail right michael so this will be a mail-in election and i think the idea being the governor does not want this seat to go vacant longer than it needs to. He feels like this seat needs to be filled. They need representation in Washington, especially with what's going on at the moment. So the idea is let's try to get this done by mail on the 28th, keep that the way it is. But obviously, this is a big change, and the State Board of Election is going to coordinate with those local jurisdictions that occupy the 7th District. But, but this, is, this, is a, this is a big change, but I understand why you'd want to do it this way.
1: Right, and so so okay. So you have nuts and bolts. It's it's a handful of jurisdictions. It's manageable on a certain scale. You do this by mail. Um, you try and get the word out to as many voters as possible. I'm sure on a certain degree um not that not that this is the way you're supposed to decide things but as a practical matter this is a district that is overwhelmingly a single party district mm-hmm. so you know, to some degree it's like the likelihood of this being a nail biter election a 51 49 you know open every envelope to get the answer is unlikely right uh, so i mean i don't i don't want to overplay that card but that maybe is part of the thinking is that Okay, this general election should be should be relatively straightforward and it's kind of going to be a trial for how do you do an all mail election, all male in election, because um, that's going to be in play for elections in the near term.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And so the second half of this for Maryland's presidential primary, the governor delayed the presidential primary until June 2nd. And again, you know, that's understandable. But at the same time. I think you and I and most people that we talk to and you hear the experts talk about that we very well may be still dealing with this issue in early June. And so I think there is some flexibility with what the governor said with the state board. Again, figure out the best way to do this, but let's delay it until June 2nd. That doesn't mean that it won't turn into a vote by mail But that wasn't outlined in the way it was with the special election for the 7th District. So still a little bit of uh, unknown there. And I think still some of our election directors are still concerned about how this plays out. But for now, we're going forward. We're just delaying until June 2nd.
1: So instead of having like around five weeks from now, you've got around 10 weeks from now, practically speaking, that's just more time. To sort out how to manage it and how to run it, and that's what leads me to let's take a look at Ohio. Mm-hmm. So, so, Ohio was one of four states that had their presidential year primary scheduled for this last week on Tuesday, along with uh, for Florida, Illinois, Arizona, right? Right. And uh, Ohio, probably among those states, probably the most, you know, the most hip deep in quick and aggressive reaction to coronavirus. Yeah, they're similar, similarly situated to Maryland. Uh, their governor has been pretty aggressive saying, we're going to shut down a lot of things. We're going to you know, have fewer public gatherings and so forth. He was feeling a lot of pressure about exposure. Mm -hmm. And literally the day before, I think I think this this conversation really boiled over at about noon on Monday before the Tuesday election. The governor said, I don't think we should hold this election. I think we should switch it to being male only or we should we should defer the date. And there was a back and forth through the, the Ohio courts. Apparently, the governor did not have. The, and the, the governor and the secretary of state, who I think oversees elections in Ohio, right, do not have the unilateral authority to just change the date. So
0: they need which to- in Maryland, the governor does have that authority in a state of emergency. So that's the big difference. Right.
1: That, that is a structural difference. Right. So so apparently the governor and the secretary of state in Ohio petitioned a state judge to, to stay the election you know you you agree with us that this is this is an overriding concern so let's not have the election tomorrow Let, any votes that have already been cast we'll count them but we're going to extend the deadline and have something else later probably by mail right then i was i'm trying to remember the timing but it was evening time like seven or eight o'clock p.m monday night that the judge denied the stay and said, I don't agree. You haven't made the case. We have to have the election tomorrow.
0: And it's too late. You know, we, we got to go forward with this. Right. And I think a lot of people were just shocked, right? I mean, so, I was. I was and for I, sure.
1: And I've seen, I mean, you've probably seen this too. I, you probably follow some of the same stuff. But on social media, there are people who served as judges who were being told you know, conflicting things hour by hour on Monday, Monday night, and into Tuesday morning because apparently the governor was so concerned about public health, even though the judge disagreed. The governor worked with the state, I guess, commissioner of public health, right, and effectively condemned a number of the polling places as unsafe for a public gathering in their state of emergency. So, Effectively, he didn't have the ability to shut down the election, but without a, a large share of the polling sites, there was no practical way to conduct the election on Tuesday, and they ended up going with the governor's plan despite the judge not agreeing. Is, right, that, a, so- is that the way you read this? The story it,
0: too. it is. And from my understanding is that Ohio law provides that the health department has the ultimate authority in matters of quarantine and isolation, which goes back to what you just mentioned. They were the health department was able to go in and say, we're not going to open any of these polling sites. It's an emergency. And if you don't have polling sites, obviously it's, it's hard to conduct an election. So process wise, it was interesting to watch all of that play out. Now, you have to think if you're a voter or if you're an election judge in Ohio and maybe on Monday night you went to bed thinking, "Okay, I'm going in tomorrow or we're going to have an election tomorrow. And then you wake up Tuesday morning and no, no, no. Again, it's off. I mean, it was it's really. So the fact that it got to that point is shocking in itself. But again, we are in uncharted territory here with this coronavirus and the way that people are having to react on the fly, but certainly right. trying to keep up with that was was dizzying, along with everything else that's going on.
1: Right, and then you look at a, a, a nearby state, of Illinois. They went ahead with their election, and then right. there were reports on Tuesday of polling places that couldn't open because the election judges just didn't post on Tuesday. They were sure. you know, they were afraid to to go do their job or whatever. I mean. You can tell what's been happening with the spread of coronavirus is that people are sort of getting it in mm-hmm. waves mm-hmm. and people are switching from, you know, this is an abstract idea to suddenly, wow, this feels very real. And wow, I, I, you know, I don't have a case of cans of soup, I better get that, right. uh, you know, i go st- stock up on my paper products and so forth. So, you know, I think this is just, it's just a human function right now, but it didn't go wonderfully in Illinois where they decided to have the election. It obviously wasn't a smooth process in Ohio where they concluded they wanted to extend the timetable through this convoluted process. I-, I think the takeaway for a state like Maryland is we got 10 weeks to decide what we want to do with our primary. We've got enough time to get it right. So, You know, we don't want to be down to the last few days if we're still amidst this kind of social panic where people don't want to be out in public. They don't want to be standing in line and and, you know, around and among random other people. Right. You got to defer to that. And if that means we do this whole thing by mail okay, let's do that six weeks out so everybody knows what the what the game plan is going to
0: be, right? Yeah, so basically let's not wait till the last second here. We know already that we've bought some time. We have until early June, but we better iron out the details sooner than later. Otherwise, we'll end up in that kind of situation. And obviously, that's not what you want to see happen. You don't want people to be confused. Uh, obviously, you don't want people to feel like they're risking their public health to go and exercise their right to vote. I mean you don't want have you don't want people right. to have to choose between the two. So you gotta find a middle ground. And it's not easy to do. I mean obviously this is a really tough situation, but I think this is another one where, you know, people don't think about, well, how will states deal with this election? And then all of a sudden it pops up and people are like, oh yeah, that's probably going to be an issue. But with everything else like slapping you in the face, like all these other issues that need to be dealt with right now, you're gonna, I think, continue to see more and more issues pop up where people are having to make really tough decisions and obviously you know you're you're going to have people no matter what you do say it's the wrong way to go but i agree with you that regardless you got to make sure that this is clear and that there's plenty of time for people to understand what's going to happen before the election
1: we are just overloaded with decisions that don't have any good options you know, the idea of like, just like the most visible thing that's happening state by state is closing public schools. Mm-hmm. And even though this virus doesn't seem to affect children the same way it does with adults, they, the children are still a vector for for the spread of a contagion. Right. So having them in public schools just means the spread will will be faster and more aggressive. So most people, I think, agree, okay, shut down the schools, that's the right thing to do. But what that means is you have lots of families who are counting on schools as the place where their kids are. Right. So what right. do you do with someone who works at a hospital, who is a first responder, or who's otherwise an essential employee, and now they're in need of child cares. They can continue in their essential job. I mean, in Maryland, we're, we're struggling to find the physical location where a provider can take care
0: of kids. Right. And for, I know yeah. counties, counties are stepping up in that in that area. I, I know a lot of counties have said, we're going to find somewhere for, you know, the, the frontline folks for first responders who right. are dealing with their kids need child care. So counties, are definitely stepping up in that regard. I know the state is trying to work with the counties, but you're right, not having the school buildings available definitely makes things difficult, especially when you consider that many counties are closing their, their buildings down because, again, we're all trying to stop the spread. But then you have these issues where, yeah, well, we do need child care for our first responders who are dealing with this on the front lines
1: right it's and so you're going to you're going to end up embracing a solution that you know is not a good solution it's just the best you can make of a tough set of circumstances um i mean i can't even get my head around what do you do managing a jail population right now Yes. Whether it's, you know, whether it's a prison with people in long term sentences or the or the the relatively short term and people being held pretrial in our county jails in Maryland. I, I mean, that's a population that's a that's a physical setting that is terrible for social distancing.
0: Right. Absolutely. So, Absolutely.
1: So, you know there are, there are places right now that are contemplating releasing nonviolent offenders just mm-hmm. for fear that you'll end up with a massive you know, public health vector created in those confined spaces. And again, like that may not be the public policy you would have wanted, but given a set of almost impossible circumstances, what do you do? Um, right. you know, I, I just think the, the policy challenges that are coming from this are way beyond simple. This is public health. And how do you deal with a public health emergency? It just, it's a ripple effect on everything. So, I and mean, hats off to all of our decision makers in in government, in the private sector, who are managing facilities and workforces and so forth. Lots of people are being called upon to make tough calls.
0: Absolutely. And you know another issue that's looming in the background, of course, we are in the final phase. For counties of our budget season, right? We're looking at the fiscal 21 budgets right now. You have budget directors who are trying to figure out how this outbreak is going to impact revenues, what they should do in terms of moving forward and the state. I mean, obviously, they need to look at that revenues and, and the projections there. But we have our county budget folks who are really, really in a tough spot because you know, their budgets will be mostly introduced in April and then there are decisions made in May, early June. And we're coming up on that point, And these are really tough decisions that have to be made. So that's just another, right. I think saw- people, people aren't thinking about that, but it. <laughs> But it's, it's a big deal. You thought you had a
1: budget plan three weeks ago. it right. looked, looked basically just fine. You're going to, you know, the employees are going to get this little raise and we don't have to raise taxes. And here's what we're going to do for education and for public safety. And now suddenly you're like, wow, our budget's upside down. We have no idea where how much water we're going to take on,
0: right? overnight, right? I mean, that's the (laughs) wild thing about all of this is that just a couple weeks ago, the stock market's humming along and everything's (laughs) fine. Everybody's doing their budgets. You know, the general assembly is humming along and then just bang. And it's, it's really, it's still hard for me to wrap my head around what's happening because obviously no one's seen anything like this, but it's, makes you think that they're, you know, for something to be able to stop the General Assembly for the first time since the Civil War, to have everybody teleworking and, and you know, flattening the curve, right? That's the hashtag. It, right, it right. really, it, it's remarkable. And it just continues to just, I'm shocked by the whole thing still. I think I still am just in shock.
1: All right. So it sounds like we've got a plan for weeks ahead. Um, I think there are policy policy issues that are connected to what we're dealing with with the virus and with this public health scare. And I think it's worth attention on that. It's also timely for us to talk about legislation that passed and the policies that have been made and that are yet to come. So, you know, we've got we've got a full plate for the weeks ahead. I think we can you know, we can pull in our colleagues who have been working on policy on behalf of the counties, get them engaged. Some of the things we want to talk about are bills that didn't pass, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so. I, we've, we've, we've got stuff to do in the weeks ahead, even if things aren't going to be super lively in Annapolis. And oh, we have
0: plenty be- to do. <laughs> <laughs> plenty to do. That's for sure.
1: So we've, we've got content and we'll keep bringing it.
0: Okay, sounds good. So we'll leave it there for now. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. Follow along on Twitter and social media. But until next time, this is Kevin signing off for Michael, and we will talk to you soon. Please wash your hands and practice social distancing.